Now, if you were to speak to a non-Christian today, whether that's an agnostic, uh, an atheist, uh, a Muslim, or a Hindu, or whatever religion or persuasion they might be from, what, would, what do you think you would find their most common objection towards Christianity is? Um, one objection that comes up quite often, I don't know whether this is the most common, but one of the most common co- objections is when people see people who claim to be Christians, who claim to honour Jesus with their lips, but then deny him with their lifestyle. So when people look at the church and they see, for example, uh, televangelists who breathe in, as it were, multi-millions of dollars sucked out of vulnerable and gullible people who they try and fleece by using the gospel, using the message of Christianity. Or when people look at the church and they see the leaders of the church embroiled in all sorts of abuses and scandals on issues which those leaders are meant to be condemning and and telling other people not to get involved with. Or when uh, people see the church as being a very controlling and restrictive institution that seems to step outside of culture for as long as it needs to until it just comes into Stop people having fun. To, to, to close the lid on whatever new thing is springing up in culture. Or perhaps people look at the church and have a real frustration with the fact that so often the church teaches about love and compassion and care, especially for the most needy and the poorest in society. And yet those within the church seem to do nothing about the issues that are surrounding them. And at times, they seem to be the ones that are pushing the cause of that poverty. When we come across caricatures of the church like that, it's, it's hard to disagree, isn't it? It's hard to know how to answer. Often our best answer is to try and draw a distinction between the teachings of Christianity and the acts of the teachers of Christianity. To say, don't judge Christianity by the way people act. Christianity really is something different. And that often is probably our best response. But the damage is already done. People don't start by looking at Christianity by picking up a Bible and reading it. They don't start with Christianity by reading the doctrines. They start with Christianity by looking at people who claim to be Christians and seeing how they live. Now, for the next few weeks in our evening services, we're going to be going through the book of 1 Timothy. We're starting a new series in 1 Timothy. And what I hope you'll see as we go through this letter is that 1 Timothy provides the remedy to almost precisely those issues that I've just described. Um, Paul is going to address issues within the Ephesian church that were happening 2,000 years ago, but it just so happens, let's say, that those issues are the very same issues which continue to rock the church today. And Paul is going to set out instructions about how Christians ought to behave in order to avoid those scandals. Now, our main text for today doesn't come from either of those sections that we read. We read those sections really as an introduction to help you get a feel for the letter. Uh, Today, we're going to focus on some verses that come right at the the centre of the book. 1 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 14 to 16. Let's read them now. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. 
So this is right at the, right at the middle of the letter. And what Paul's doing here, he sort of takes a little aside from the instructions that he's been setting out, and he gives Timothy the reason that he's written this letter. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Paul writes this letter to Timothy in order to instruct Timothy how the church ought to conduct themselves. That's verse 15. If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. But this letter isn't just written to Timothy. There's a number of indications in the letter that the the letter is intended to be written Uh, intended to be read to the whole church. This is so that the whole church might know how to conduct themselves. And what sort of areas is Paul going to pin his finger on? Well, I've given you a little bit of a taste already by the things I introduced in the introduction. But I'll just take you quickly through the letter, pointing out some of the main parts of it. So, chapter 1, for example, Paul's going to deal with false teachers in the church. And these false teachers seem to be where many of the issues are coming from at this church in Ephesus. And interestingly, Paul identifies these false teachers not by what they're saying, but by what they're doing. Chapter 1, verse uh, 6, for example, Some have wandered away from these that is, a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, and they've turned to meaningless talk. Wandering away from the pure heart and the good conscience and the sincere faith is the way that Paul is able to determine which ones are the false teachers. Paul goes on, he begins to talk about issues of the law. That's verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly, uh, and so on. Paul's going to say, Christianity needs right conduct. It's important about the way that we behave. But Christianity is not just an issue of laws. It's not about overbearing laws. It's not about rules and and principles. We get into chapter 2 and Paul's going to address issues about the way Christians relate to the world. Should we be a separate little social bubble out on our own or should we be totally mixed in with the world around us? Well, Paul says we ought to engage with the world. Chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, um, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving ought to be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. Engage with the world. Pray for the world. But don't come up in a battle against the world. Engage with the world in order to live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Next is going to address issues of the role of men and women in the church. Verse 8, for example, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. And then he goes on to address how women ought to behave in the church. He's going to address men who don't step up to their responsibility and he's going to address women who overstep their responsibilities. And in this section as well, he's going to deal with something of of a celebrity culture that had drifted into the Ephesian church. People wanting to flaunt their riches. People wanting to... Uh, put themselves above others. It's a distortion that we still see creeping into the church, even today. Chapter 3, Paul's going to deal with 
leaders in the church. And he sets out the high standards that are required of leaders of the church. Later on in the letter, chapter 5, he's going to make the point that these leaders of the church are not above reproach. The church isn't to be a place where the leaders and the powers and the authorities are given free reign. This isn't to be a place where scandals and abuses are brushed under the carpet. Leaders are held to accountability. Leaders are to be uh, meeting this high standard that he sets in chapter 3. Chapter 4 is going to go on and address the hypocrisy of the false teachers. Those people who don't handle God's word right. Those who uh, don't practice what they preach, as it were. Chapter 5 is going to deal with how the church should care for the poorest in society. Especially the widows he focuses on here. And chapter 6 points the finger at those who see godliness. Those who see the Christian gospel as a means to a fast book. The means to financial gain. So as we go through this letter, that that little summary isn't intended to be um, a full explanation of all the issues that Paul deals with. It's just meant to be a a bit of a taster. What sort of topics will we be covering over the next few weeks as we go through this series? Uh, And we're going to see that these issues that Paul addresses are issues which are very much relevant to the church of the 21st century, especially in the West. Now, why is the conduct of believers so important? Why has Paul got this urge to make sure that the people in the church are behaving rightly? Well, let's go back to our main verse for this evening. Chapter 3, verse 15. Um, If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. For Paul, the conduct of believers in the church is important because of what the church is and because of what the church is trying to do. So first, the conduct of believers is important because of what the church is. The church is the household of God. The church is the household of the living God. When we gather, we're not just a group of friends that are trying to get along. That's not the reason that our conduct is important. The church is not just a brand that needs to try and reach a target audience out there in the world. That's not the reason our conduct is important. We're not a business that needs to attract and to gain market share. If we were, that might give reasons for certain conduct. But that's not what the church is. So that's not why our conduct is important. We're not a social club driven by consumer choice. If we were, that might affect the way we behave. It might affect the things we do, the things we spend our time doing. But we're not. We're not a social club. That's not the reason uh, that Paul has got a a focus on our conduct. We're not a university trying to promote our own wisdom. The church is not a means to power. The church is not an escape from reality. The church is not a local council. The church is not some kind of advisory board for morality to the world. The church is not an entertainment venue. The church is not just a building. If it were any of those things, our conduct would be driven by the people within the church. How we think is best to behave. How we are trying to engage with the world outside. How we're going to expand our market share, as it were. 
If it was any of those things, the conduct of the people within the church would only need to be driven by what would make it successful. What would bring more people in? What would get more money in the boxes? What would get us more influence and power? But it's none of those things. The church is the household of God. And if the church is the household of God, then the people within the church are the children of God. That's Paul's vision of the church. That's what the church is. That's what we are. And so as a result of that truth, our behaviour is driven by and is aiming towards honouring the head of the household. Submitting to the head of the household, our Father. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. If we claim to have fellowship with God, who is light, then we ought also to walk in light. That's the thinking that underpins Paul's teaching here. In in fact, it's the thinking that underpins all of the letter of 1 Timothy. Your conduct is important because you are a member of the church, you are a child of God, you are part of God's household. If you want to be part of this family, you've got to bear the family resemblance. You've got to bear the family likeness. And so the reason that 1 Timothy is so full of instructions and imperatives is because Paul's laying down what is fitting for those who are in God's family. And that's an important point when we come to interpreting 1 Timothy. Why is 1 Timothy relevant for us today? If the church was just a social club, if it was just a a means to to reach out to the culture, if it was just a, a gathering of friends, then many of the things that Paul would be saying we could write off as culturally irrelevant. But Paul isn't writing about cultural issues. Paul's writing about how we conduct ourselves as a result of the fact that we are children of God's household. The eternal, the immortal, the unchangeable God. Paul's emphasis on conduct is because of what the church is. Secondly, his emphasis on conduct is because of what the church is meant to do. Chapter 3, verse 15 again. If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And it's that last little bit I want to focus on now. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. What on earth does that mean? Well, elsewhere in Paul's writings, interestingly, you'll find that the church is built on the foundation of truth. So let's say church, truth. Okay. So elsewhere, Paul says, truth is a foundation and the church is built on it. Here in 1 Timothy, he's saying the church is the foundation of the truth. Now, how can these two seemingly contradictory statements stand side by side? Well, they are both true. In terms of the church's source and its life and its origin, how did the church come to be? How, why does it exist? That sits on the foundation of truth, the gospel. But in terms of what the church is meant to do, our task, our purpose, 
is to be defender, preserver, protector of the truth. The church becomes the foundation of the truth. The church is holding out and presenting this truth to the world in which we live. Yes, the truth to the world. Not a truth. The truth. There is one truth about life, the universe, morality, salvation. The the truth that is found in the gospel. And it's this truth that the church holds out to the world and invites them to come and to, to see it and to taste it and to know it and in the process to know God. It's the church's function and purpose to be presenting the truth to the world. And because that's the church's function, that's why Paul's got such an eye on the church's conduct. Because as I introduced at the, at the start of the sermon, when the world comes across Christianity, it doesn't start by picking up the book. It doesn't start by reading the words of Jesus. That's not where the world starts when it comes to Christianity. The world starts by looking at the church. It starts by looking at Christians. It starts by looking at your life and seeing how you live. And so Paul's going to say, or, or Paul's thinking is defined by the fact that if, if anybody else is going to be drawn into this church, if anybody else is going to turn from sin and trust in Christ, if anybody else is going to be persuaded by this truth, then it's got to be backed up by your life. And if your life is a denial of the truths that you're trying to present, then there's no way on earth that people are going to believe it. There's no way on earth that people will be persuaded. And this is going to be an important for us as we consider some of the issues that are in this letter. Because some of these things are inconvenient, let's say. Some of these things are culturally a little bit backwards. Some of the things in 1 Timothy cause us to think in a way that is so radically different from the way the world around us thinks. And there will be a temptation as we go through 1 Timothy to decide to, well, let's just water down Paul's commands a little bit. Let's not quite go the whole way that he suggests. Let's not do everything that he lays down in this letter. We'll do most of it. And we agree in principle, but in practice we'll we'll change one or two of the things. And, you know, we might even try and justify that by saying that, you know, all we're doing is we're trying to reduce the distance that people have to travel when they come into the church. We don't want them to come in and be so taken aback with the, with the difference, the awkwardness, the weirdness of these Christians. We want to be like them. We want to make it easy for them. The church, Paul says, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. We're not presenting a marketing strategy. We're not presenting a cultural ideal. We're not aiming to try and fit in with the world around us. We're aiming to be the embodiment of God's household. We're presenting and preserving the truth of God's word. And the most effective way we can do that is to live out this truth in all of its fullness, as fully and as closely as we can in every way. You know, if you want to convince people of the true and eternal riches that we have in Christ, we are rich in Christ, aren't we? We are really blessed. 
by Christ, if you want to convince people of that, they're not going to listen to your hymns, to your favourite Bible verses, to your pleas. They're going to listen to your life, which is sacrificial in every way, which doesn't chase after material possessions, because you know you can be sacrificial with what you have on this earth. Because you're not building up treasure on this earth. You're storing up treasure in heaven. When the world sees that sort of conduct, they will more readily be persuaded that what you have in Christ really is riches, really is blessing. If you want to convince the world of God's good design for men and women, whether that's in the area of gender and sexuality, whether that's in issues of marriage, whether that's in issues of leadership within the church, the world isn't going to listen to even your most reasoned arguments unless they see marriages, Christian marriages, lived according to God's pattern for marriage, where men and women work alongside each other and for one another in order to flourish. And where they see a church where where these patterns are lived out in practice, in full. And they see that far from being the, the restrictive and backwards ideas that the world so caricatures them as, they are progressive and helpful and liberating and good. If you want to convince the world of the love that God has for us, they're not going to listen Again, to your hymns, to your psalms. They're not going to take note of those Facebook posts until they see in your life the fact that you are able to love others as a reflection of the love that you have received from God himself. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And Paul's concern for our conduct is so that as we try and hold out this truth, as we try and defend it, as we try and protect it, our conduct wouldn't be a hindrance to this mission, but that it would be a help to it. And so 1 Timothy is going to be all about our conduct within the church. So as we go through, week by week, section by section, passage by passage, we're going to find Paul laying down rules, regulations, commands, instructions. And it might seem um, that Paul is setting out a, a law, as it were. This is how Christianity ought to be. But before we jump to wrong conclusions, I want you to look at verse 16 with me. Which, uh, first reading, I will admit, it's difficult to follow the, the flow of logic from verse 15. But let's have a go. Well, let's read verse 15 again. If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. What is verse 16 all about? 
where it centers on that, that little phrase right in the middle, the mystery of godliness. It goes from describing the conduct of the church, why that's important because of what the church is and what the church is trying to do, and then he jumps to describing the mystery of godliness. What is this mystery of godliness? Well, the word godliness will come up a number of times in 1 Timothy, and essentially, when, when Paul's talking about godliness, it means the conduct of life that honours God. A life that honours God. Life as a child of God, in God's household, as it were. That's the godliness that Paul's referring to. And he says the mystery of godliness. What is this mystery of godliness? Well, when we talk about a mystery, normally in English, we mean something mysterious, something a little bit uncertain, something hidden. Well, that's not really what Paul means when he uses the word mystery. Uh, Perhaps a better word would be secret. It's certainly not anything mysterious. It's certainly not anything mystical. It, It really is just a secret. It's the secret of godliness. But for Paul, it's not a hidden secret, something that we don't know. It's a secret that has been revealed. So what Paul goes from, he goes from in verse 15, talking about the conduct of people within the church. And then in verse 16, he talks about the secret, the revealed secret of what I've called, as the title of this message, true religion. The secret of true religion. What is the secret of joining God's family? What is the secret of being part of the church? What is the secret to being saved? What is the secret of true religion? Is the secret, is the important thing, is the thing that we should focus on, is it the authority of God's word and the laws that are laid down there? Is that the thing that we should centre our efforts on? Is it submission to church leaders? Is Paul going to say, look, if you submit to your leaders, if you submit to men like Timothy and like myself, then you'll have the secret of true godliness. Is that what Paul's going to say? Is the secret obedience to the law? Look, there'll be many people laying down all sorts of different laws, but this is the right law to follow. Is that the secret to true religion? Is that the secret to being part of God's family? No. The secret, the revealed secret, is Jesus Christ. He. He who appeared in a body, became a man was vindicated by the Spirit. I take that to mean rose from the dead. Was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Jesus Christ. He's the secret to true religion. He's the secret to godliness. He's the key to becoming part of God's household. He's the way that you become part of this family. The incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the glory of Jesus and the necessity of repentance and faith in him. That is the truth that the church holds. That is the revealed secret of true religion. Now that leaves us with a few questions that we ought to consider before we finish. First, what makes you a Christian? What makes you part of this church? Is it because you turn up every week? Is it because you've been baptised? Is it because you read your Bible regularly? Are you part of the church because you give money to the church? 
or time to the church. Paul's thinking is that you only become part of the church through Jesus Christ. He is the secret to true religion. He is the secret to becoming part of God's family. He is the mystery of godliness. Not obedience, not attendance, not time and effort and money or anything else. What makes you a Christian? What are you depending upon? Is it your the fact that you've grown up in a Christian family? Is it the fact that you've just been coming along to church for so many years? Well, you must be a Christian by now. These verses urge us to reconsider. The only way to become part of this family is to put your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. There's no other way. There's no other secret. There is no other truth. Trust him and him alone. This verse causes us to ask the question, what is the message of the church? What do we need to be telling the world out there in the 21st century? Do we need to be fighting the battle about the role of women in society? Do we, do we need to be pushing the right view of marriage? Do we need to be trying to get more people to, to motivate themselves to care for the poor? Should we be on the front line against abortion? Now I would say all those things we do have a responsibility to speak out against. But what's the most important? The most important is none of those things. The true secret is Jesus Christ himself. That's what the world needs to hear. The world needs to hear that he appeared in a body. The world needs to hear that he was vindicated by the Spirit. The world needs to hear that he was seen by the angels, was preached among the world, has been believed among the nations, has been taken up in glory. That is the message that the church needs to be taken out. And those other messages, marriage, abortion, care, those flow from this one truth, but they never replace this truth. We need to consider what is our purpose as a church. Why do we meet? Why do we gather? Why do we have this institution? Is it just to maintain tradition? Is it to make sure that things just keep running as they always have done? Is that what the purpose of the leadership here in the church is? Is that what they're trying to do? To keep things the same? Not let anything change? No. The purpose of the church is to proclaim Christ, to be the pillar of truth, the, the, the institution that holds this truth up high and lofty so that everyone can see, to be the foundation, protecting it from attack and error, to be holding it out. And so finally, why is it that we will try and keep these commands that are written down in 1 Timothy? Why will we try and be obedient to these words? The answer is so that we might glorify and honour Jesus Christ. That we might serve him who is the secret of true religion. 
not to save ourselves through obedience to some other law. Paul wasn't coming as like a, a competitor to those false teachers. They were trying to lay down the law. Do this, do that, do the other, God will be pleased. It might read as though Paul comes along and says, oh no, no, don't do that, do this instead, God will be pleased. That's not the system. Those false teachers are saying, do this, do that, do the other, God will be pleased. Paul comes and says, Jesus, take him, hold him, cling to him, trust in him. God is pleased with him. You ought to be found in him. That's the only way. That's the secret of true religion. And if you have taken hold of him, then what will flow from your life is then all these other imperatives that Paul will lay down. The reason we've started in the middle of the letter for the first message in a series is because this thinking underpins the rest of what Paul says in the letter. He wants our conduct to be right because of what the church is and the task that the church has. And his idea that sets him on this path of teaching is the fact that the true secret, that the secret to true religion is not obedience to a law or commands or any other thing. The secret is Jesus Christ and him crucified.